You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Welcome to Salem again. Um, Austin's going to be preaching on Psalm 25, the whole chapter. And I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation tonight. So I'll give you a chance to find that in your phone or Bible or what have you. Would you please stand if you're able for the reading of the word. Lord, I give my life to you. I trust in you, my God. Do not let me be disgraced, or let my enemies rejoice in my defeat. No one who trusts in you will ever be disgraced, but disgrace comes to those who try to deceive others. Show me the right path, O Lord. Point out the road for me to follow. Lead me by your truth and teach me, for you are the God who saves me. All day long I put my hope in you. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and unfailing love, which you have shown from long ages past. Do not remember the rebellious sins of my youth. Remember me in the light of your unfailing love. For you are merciful, O Lord. The Lord is good and does what is right. He shows the proper path to those who go astray. He leads the humble in doing right, teaching them in his way. The Lord leads with unfailing love and faithfulness. All who keep his commandments and obey his demands. For the honor of your name, O Lord, forgive me my many, many sins. Who are those who fear the Lord? He will show them the path they should, could, should choose. They will live in prosperity, and their children will inherit the land. The Lord is a friend to those who fear him. He teaches them his covenant. My eyes are always on the Lord, for he rescues me from the traps of my enemies. Turn to me and have mercy, for I am alone and in deep distress. My problems go from bad to worse. Oh, save me from them all. Feel my pain and see my trouble. Forgive all my sins. See how my enemies have and how viciously they hate me. Protect me, rescue me, rescue my life from them. Do not let me be disgraced, for in you I take refuge. May integrity and honesty protect me, for I put my hope in you. O God, ransom Israel from all its troubles. This is the word of God for the people of God. Uh, good evening, my name is Austin, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I want to welcome you to Salem Prez. Uh, if you're a kid who's staying in the service, you can come on up and grab one of these pew kits. Um, I want to share a couple things as I get started tonight. Um, the first of which is that uh, if you're visiting with us for the first time, uh, we like to preach from a manger year-round, and it reminds us of the birth of Jesus and so we always have the manger here. 
but you wouldn't know that because you're new and, and uh, you might think, well, this is just Christmas, but we always have the manger. And, and it's just a part of our iconography. It's a Presbyterian thing. Uh, don't look that up and don't ask anyone about that. Uh, we are in the Advent season and uh, Caroline, who's been, uh, who was singing tonight, has been putting together these Advent devotionals. Uh, that come through our newsletter. So if you don't get our newsletter, uh, they have been excellent. And they've been uh, visual art, music, prayers, uh, uh, things that have been created, written, uh, or portrayed by people within our community. So I just want to um, encourage that. Uh, another off-the-cuff announcement. If you're a kid who's big, don't take a puke kit because apparently we're running out. So let the little ones have one, all right? So... I'm talking to you, some of you college students. I saw some of you come up there. Um, so this Advent, we're doing a series called Looking for the Messiah in the Psalms. Last week, we looked at how the Messiah is safe. And that was from Psalm 16. And this week, we're looking at how the Messiah is needed. Uh, Messiah means anointed one. It's the, the one chosen to rule in power is what that, is that uh, word means. And when I say Messiah, a Messiah is needed, I think that actually might not be that controversial. I think many people can agree that uh, things are rough. There's redemption needed in certain spaces. And so some people want some anointed person to come on into some space to rescue them. Uh, whether that's you're looking for some anointed person to redeem your workplace or, uh, or a political figure. I, I don't think it's controversial to say that we're looking for some anointed one to come to us. Uh, but let me put it a different way. You, as a person, as a spiritual being, are in need of a Messiah. And, and you may not believe that, but I, I hope tonight I can make a compelling case for why admitting that can be so freeing, that you and me too are in need of a Messiah. Psalm 25 is a long prayer where David lists some things that he wants to tell God, uh, some things he wants to ask God, some things that he believes are true, and some things he's hoping for from God. David ends the psalm by begging God to ransom Israel, and he begins by submitting, O Lord, I give my life to you. So he starts and ends with surrender. And in between those surrenders, you realize he's needy. So we're going to look at Psalm 25 in two ways, neediness and surrender. Uh, David is very bossy in this psalm, and it reminds me of a woman who used to attend Salem and is now with Jesus. Do you have any guesses, Ben? Vivian Turneau. If, if you ever got the chance to meet Vivian Turneau, she used to go to Salem, and she would come to our prayer before church uh, at 4.30 p.m., and uh, Vivian, the way that she would pray, when I thought about this, these are the first two thoughts that came into my mind, first straight off the top of my head. Uh, she talked to Jesus like he was either her cat or her employee. And, uh, and I don't mean that as disrespect. You can laugh at that. I mean, I think Vivian challenged all of us in how we pray when you would spend the time with her. Um, the, the image that came to my mind when I said employee was that I kind of pictured that Vivian ran like a car wash and Jesus was like a teenager who worked for her. 
So when she would pray, she would say things like, Jesus, you better show up today and you better, you better do your job. You better do what you said you're going to do. And it was, it really truly was not disrespectful. Uh, it was this unique right that Vivian had earned as an aged saint who was so familiar with Jesus that she spoke to him with this confidence and familiarity. Um, and David is sort of like that in Psalm 25. He's telling God, don't let me be disgraced in verse two. Show me the right path in verse four. Lead me by your truth in verse five. Remember your compassion in verse six. In the first six verses, David commands God with these verbs. Don't show, point, lead, teach, remember. And then after all of that bossing around, he has the audacity to say, oh yeah, and don't remember any of the things that I did wrong. In verse seven, he says, do not remember the rebellious sins of my youth. Remember me in the light of your unfailing love, for you are merciful, O Lord. Yes, David is being very demanding, and he's asking a lot of God, but there's an assumption underlying those demands. Uh, It's neediness, David's neediness, and then trustworthiness, God's trustworthiness. Even though David is demanding on closer inspection, um, you see that he's subordinating himself to God. This is a classic case of desperation leading to intimacy. I'm sure many of you can relate to this, uh, crying out to God when you feel helpless. Uh, David's willingness to beg God, to plead with him, they all underscore an assumption in David that he, David, needs help and that God has the power to help him. And you have to remember that he is the king of Israel when he's doing this. How many of us spend our good days not, you know, needing God? Uh, And I could certainly take that even farther. I think I become superstitious and I, I, I don't want to ask him to help me rely on him lest he come through and, and saddle me with turmoil. Um, I've had a tough time putting into words the neediness and desperation of David. But the things that came to mind, there, there's a couple words that came to mind for me, which is um, it implies, his tone implies this, this view of himself that's creaturely. He has a creatureliness. Uh, he knows that he is not a self-made man. It's also childlike. Uh, I think if David was our preacher and he regularly said, no one who trusts in you will ever be disgraced and we would find him, uh, I, think, I think if he was preaching that from our pulpit, we would find him to be out of touch. Because a lot of us would say, well, I trusted him and I feel disgraced, right? But there's like a childlike nature to David that leads to him talking that way. Here's a few analogies that came to mind but are not perfect. I think for a lot of us, our identity as Christians might be compared to our affiliation with a political party that we like, or maybe a sports team that we support. So we say things like, I like what they're doing with X, uh, but I'm not convinced Y is a good idea, 
or I love some of the players, but I'm not sure about this coaching staff. And what I mean by that, those analogies is, is that we see ourselves as individuals with agency and a willingness to, for the most part, we'll identify with God so far as it feels resonant for us. But we're not needy. Uh, we're not subordinate. We're not childlike. And David is the opposite. He's talking to God like a needy child. Uh, he's essentially saying, you promised these things and give me a break, which uh, those are phrases, you know, you promised and, and, you know, don't hold me accountable are pretty uh, common phrases that come out of a child's mouth. And the Messiah is offering to you the same thing that David is taking advantage of. We can all go through Advent and buy Christmas presents and indulge in a little bit too much of this or that. And we can still call ourselves Christians. And honestly, that is enough for God. Okay? He's not asking for anything from you. But David is recognizing that God is actually offering us more than just that. Uh, He's both powerful and safe, as we learned last week. But that's only half the story. Yes, he's approachable, but to approach him... That's only beautiful and potent as much as we let him into our life, as much as we go to him. Uh, David's mindset assumes that he is lost. Uh, No one asks for directions as David does when he says, lead me, show me your path. If they know where they're going, right? No one asks for directions if they know where they're going, or at least uh, if they think they know where they're going. David assumes he's going to be disgraced. So he asks to be protected. David assumes he needs love. So he asks God to remember him. David assumes he's been rebellious and sinful. So he asks God, can you forget that part? David assumes a lot of needs and he brings them to the king of kings, his king, his father. You know, dare we say his heavenly dad. And this, that part of David is, is appealing to me, uh, though I think it's a bit difficult for us to mimic or exercise in our own lives. Uh, we may not feel very needy all the time, but we all experience, you know, acute moments of a lack of direction or a fear of being disgraced or unloved or shameful at different times. One of my favorite discoveries from uh, being on sabbatical this summer was the spiritual prophet that can be found from reading mysteries. I got really into old crime fiction, uh, especially G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown, if you've never read that, and anything by Agatha Christie. Uh, And the book that convinced me that reading mysteries can be spiritually edifying is And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie. And the reason is that so much of the mystery genre, and this book is like a classic example Uh, highlights the human capacity for self-deception. And the story goes like this, if you haven't read it. Uh, Ten people are invited to an exclusive island estate by an aristocrat. And for most of these ten people, they don't remember knowing this aristocrat. But the invitation implies that they should in some specific way. Each has something something specific that makes them think 
uh, that they, they should know this nobleman. And, uh, and because it's like an exclusive invitation to this sort of exclusive place, their vanity draws them in to attend. But once they're on the island, they gather around for like a cocktail hour and a vinyl record starts playing for the group, accusing each of them of a specific murder. And in each case, the person has a rationalization of why that death was an accident and not actually their fault. Okay, so it's an island of people whose vanity overcomes their own knowledge that this host is a stranger to them. And then when confronted with their complicity in these various deaths, each of them has a reason why they're not the murderer, okay? But the twist is that none of them give that benefit of the doubt to the other nine. They think, I'm an, I'm an, I had this accident, but I'm on an island with nine other murderers. They see themselves as victims of accidental circumstance, but assume their fellow guests are all capable of murder. And is that not a perfect fictional representation of the human condition? Uh, there's a term for this, actually, called the fundament, fundamental attribution error. And it's an individual's tendency to attribute um, another's actions to that person's character. In other words, you did that because that's your personality and character. While attributing our own behavior to, well, these external factors outside of our control led, led us to you know, do X, Y, or Z. So you have a party full of people rationalizing their own behavior, but unwilling to give the benefit of the doubt to others. Why do we do that? Why don't we give the benefit of the doubt to others? Likely because of anecdotal evidence in our lives, okay? It's, it's a fair assessment to look at other people. People are messy, and people can be dangerous and foolish and even calculating. So the problem with that bias is not that we have the wrong assessment of other people. It's a wrong assessment of the self. You know, so our mistake here is to underestimate our own capacity for sin. David is not underestimating his sin. He knows he's a needy subject of the king of kings. Uh, pastors are often accused of uh, being smarter than we really are by way of being accused of having motives behind things that are not actually there. That doesn't actually really happen in this church, and I say that with very humble gratitude, okay? Uh, but a few years ago, I was going through a rough patch where I was under a lot of scrutiny, and I didn't feel like the accusations were fair or true. But someone had me, uh, during this season, read an article that made the point that while these accusations may not be true, they can't be any worse than anything I would ever do that would lead to me needing Jesus to die in my place. Does that make sense? Let me say that again. Uh, someone gave me this article the, that was saying these accusations against you, they might not be true, but you certainly could be accused of things just as bad, if not worse, if you really believe and are going to preach to people that Jesus had to die for your sins. And ever since that, when I hear my pastor friends say, um, you know, someone's saying I'm doing this or I'm doing that, I wonder what it would be like if a pastor who faced an outlandish accusation, I wonder if their response was, well, that sounds like me. Uh, I think that's the kind of mindset that David has. I think that's the kind of mindset that leads someone to write something as needy as Psalm 25. 
David enjoyed knowing God, perhaps more than anyone ever documented. Uh, Mary Margaret and I were talking right before the service about this passage. And in verse 14, she, she asked me, um, it translates friendly in all of these that God, you know, that God is a, or God is a friend uh, in verse 14 in like all the English translations, she said. But I remember this psalm from when I, she like has a love for the psalm and remembered it being secret counsel. So we went and uh, like you do on a Sunday afternoon, we pulled out the Hebrew lexicon on my, on my laptop and, and looked it up. And I loved that language. A secret counsel was like the word that they used in the King James. And it, it, it really implies, even though it says friend in your Bible, it really means that you have this deep, intimate, secret relationship with God, or at least David did. Uh, for every needy ask, David has a lot of lines about trusting and following. The first line says, I give my life to you. Okay, so we've talked about the neediness. Now let's talk about giving my life, the surrender part. In verse four, David asks, show me the right path. Point out the road for me to follow. And he trusts that God will show that path. As he says in verse eight, he shows the proper path to those who go astray. In verse nine, he says, he leads the humble in doing right. In verse 10, it says, the Lord leads with unfailing love. Verse 12, he will show them the path. To go back to earlier, this is another manifestation of David's childlike creatureliness. And again, I wonder how many of us have that kind of Christian identity, or do we have the one that's a little less like surrender and more a la carte? Uh, This is what I mean by comparing our faith to a political party or or a sports team. We like most of it. We might not agree with everything. And for you adults in the room, you you probably see yourself as a fully realized, self-possessed person with the power to make choices. And my point is not to say that you should be more like David. I just think that there's a correlation between how much David enjoys this secret counsel of knowing God and this needy surrender. To be a Christian, you do not need to be like David. And if you've read other stories about David, you, you could word that also. You can be like David and be a Christian. But I think David illustrates what it can be like to fully long for and find the Messiah. Uh, I've been a Christian for 21 years. And this year, I've been a professed Christian for more of my life than not. And as I said last week, I spent different seasons with various amounts of intimacy with God. Something that shifted in my prayer life this summer uh, was first that I actually started praying again. um, Because I had made myself so busy and self-reliant as a pastor that I didn't pray a lot. But I think what also shifted was this childlike posture. When my oldest child was born, I decided that I needed to be a grown-up. I took out my nose ring, and uh, for a very small window, I started wearing a bow tie in grad school. Uh, And I think that kind of posture actually bled over into my spiritual life, where I said, well, I I need to start uh, dressing up like a grown-up in my spiritual life. Uh, I started to try to read bigger chunks of the Bible, with more intensity, and I approached the Bible like something for me to master 
as an educated adult. And I think a consequence was that my prayer life became more sober, uh, more brief, and less raw. Uh, this is kind of how I would characterize my prayers during that season. Uh, it'd be like, uh, God, hello, uh, Austin. Uh, just wanted to let you know a few things to put on your list. Uh, thank you. I hope you have a good day. Goodbye. There, were, there was a time a few weeks after I graduated college uh, where I didn't have a job and I was running out of money. And I literally dropped to my knees and I looked up at the Flatiron Mountains in Boulder and I cried out, God, I will go anywhere and I will do anything. Please show me. There was another time I was in a blizzard at 10,000 feet in the Tetons and uh, myself and the guys I was with could not find the trail because it was white out and it was just snowed over. And we, we begged God to save us and to show us how to get down the mountain without having to go by way of cliff instead down a gentle slope. And I knew in those times that I was desperate and helpless. And I bet you've had times like that too. But the rest of the time, I don't feel that way. Why? Uh, Is it because I am any less vulnerable than those times? No. Uh, Do I get distressed like it says David does in verse 16? Yes. Do I have problems like David says in verse 17? Yes. Do I feel pain? And do I sin, just like David in verse 18? Yes. But I spend most of my days trying to be a grown-up, either fretting or gossiping or problem-solving. I am fully aware that I cannot convince you of your neediness when I stand up here because I can't really even convince myself of my my neediness. But I want, I want to work backwards and just encourage you to think about if you want to enjoy this secret counsel, this friendship of God, then I think that that means that we surrender to him if we really want to enjoy it. And you don't really surrender unless you feel you're in need. David clearly enjoys this. He enjoys this secret counsel. Uh, This man ripped his clothes off to dance before God. He writes desperately pleading prayers like this one. And he pushes at God to do things. I want that. I hope you want that. I think to enjoy God like David, you need to surrender. But to surrender, you kind of have to admit that you're needy. And that's the opposite of how many of us approach faith. We have our views and we ask the question, well, can the Messiah mesh with my worldview? Uh, You might notice the word path appears a couple times in this passage. Also road. Uh, David's not saying, I know where I want to go. Will you, God, also be going that way? He's not approaching God and saying, I I know where I'm going. Would you like to come with me? 
David is a child asking without knowing where he's going. He asks for a path, a road, a way, and truth. And David didn't even know how this would be answered, which was in his own family. Where is the Messiah in this psalm? That's the question we're asking in this series. Finding the Messiah's the Messiah. There's only one. Finding the Messiah in the Psalms. He is the path that David's asking for. He's the road. He's the way, the truth, and the light, as Jesus describes himself in John 14. Jesus will have you any way you come to him. Look at Matthew 20. He tells a parable where vineyard workers are paid the same wage whether they were in the field at the start of the day with the owner all day or they just come at the end. They get paid the same. So the reward is the same. And coming to the owner earlier and spending the day working is not going to earn you anything extra with him. And it's actually kind of a vulnerable task If you decide to do that, it's vulnerable to spend time to get in the vineyard because you're saying no to lots of other things. Uh, And David is showing us that if we actually come to him needy and surrendered, we will be very vulnerable. That's what's happening to David. He's saying, look how vulnerable I am. I need you. I need you to, to lead me. I need you to protect me. Calling on Jesus is good. It's great. Uh, calling Jesus the way, that, that puts us at a little bit of a risk uh, because it ends up meaning that we have to deny some self-sufficiency. We might have to give up some idols or our own opinions about something like politics or ethics or morality or just pleasure. Following anyone is a vulnerable act because you're letting them be in charge of your safety and your future. Last week, I hope that you were compelled to believe that the Messiah is safe. And today, I promise you that Jesus is who he says he is in Matthew 11. An easy yoke, a light burden. We can all come to him and honestly, you can hold on to a lot of your stuff, a lot of your opinions, a lot of your idols, even your perpetual idolatry. I suspect, though, that the real goodness comes when we surrender our self-sufficiency and come to him like a needy and demanding child. Uh, People don't like Advent, if you didn't know that. And do you know why people don't like Advent? They don't like songs in the minor key. Uh, They don't like dark lights. They don't like moody prayers. And uh, this is a bit of a shot across the bow, but I think that's because we don't want to look at our neediness and we don't want to surrender. And Advent makes us do that. We want to skip all that slow music and dark lights to the Christmas lights and the tree and the presents and the cookies and the sweaters. And you can do that. And he will pay you your wages no matter what. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I just want you to also know that if you decide to go beyond that and be vulnerable, 
if you can sit in your neediness, or even if you can't, but you try, if you can open your hands to surrender, you will find healing and peace beyond what you just experienced by naming that you are a Christian. It might lead you so far as to cry out, Oh Lord, I give you my life. The gesture that I hope comes to mind when you think about a needy child, someone saying, I want to give over to you, is, uh, is coming with your hands like this. And I think what's so great about what David has written is that I think some of us think that when we come up to this table, what we're supposed to do is, you know, become a grown-up and be prepared to put out our hands in a holy posture. And I think what David is showing us is that he is a whiny child who's coming and saying, I want food. (laughs) And I think that that is how you get to this place where you enjoy our Lord at such a deep level is when you can come to this table, not as a grown up who's all buttoned up, but as someone who's able to say, I'm vulnerable. I don't know what I'm doing. Remember, we love these rascals.